I cannot preach during an interim period without thinking of my friend Tom Hanks. Years ago, when we had just begun another such period, Tom was chair of a committee to find an interim preacher, which they had not yet done. At his Sunday night deacons meeting, Tom said that if worse comes to worse, if things get really, really bad, we can always ask a church member to preach. The next morning he called me. The Old Testament Abraham Isaac story is uh, referenced in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is sometimes called the Heroes of the Faith because it pays tribute to notable saints of the faith. I'm reading selected verses from that chapter and even mixing up some translations. <coughs> Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The fundamental fact of existence is that trust in God, faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle, it's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors. For by faith, Abraham, at the time of testing, offered Isaac back to God. Acting in faith, he was as ready to return the promised son, his only son, as he had been to receive. For Abraham figured that if God wanted to, he could raise the dead. In a sense, that's what happened when he received Isaac back alive from off the altar. This is the gospel of grace. On this All Saints Day, I want to focus on a most peculiar saint, but a remarkably, remarkably influential 19th century saint. He was Danish, a Copenhagen man author of 30-plus philosophical religious books, depending upon how you count. He had the unusual name of Soren Kierkegaard, though I have been assured by my colleagues that the Danish pronunciation would be Kierkegaard. The truth is, his name is such a mouthful that many just refer to him as S.K., Though the word had not been created at the time, I cannot help but imagine that his classmates thought of him as a nerd. <laughs> Physically, he was delicate. Mentally, he was precocious. Psychologically, he was often depressed. In his journals, he wrote, I was already an old man when I was born. Delicate, slender, weak, deprived of almost every condition for holding my own with other boys or even for counting as a complete human being. He added, melancholy, sick in soul, in many ways unfortunate. One thing I had 
an eminently shrewd wit given me presumably in order that I might not be completely defenseless. In college, S.K. began preparing for the ministry. But for a while, this 19th century nerd became a 19th century playboy. He put aside the constraints of religion, enjoying his time at the local pub, and took forever to finish college. But in the end, his disciplined passions won out, and he completed his theology exam with honors. He became engaged to a young woman, Regina Olson. But then he felt a call from God to a task so risky, so demanding, that he felt he could not ask Regina to join him in such a sacrifice. So he broke the engagement. What was this awesome task he believed God to have laid on him, a task so demanding that he even had to forego marriage? It was the task of making clear what it really meant to be a Christian. Martin Luther, he said, had, had 95 theses. I have, I have only one. Christianity has not been made a reality. Nothing is truer, he said, than the truest remark ever made about the institutional church. It is a society of people who, with the help of certain sacraments, evade the duty of loving God. In the newspaper, he would write things like, there is a major difference between the church and the local theater. The theater's honest. <laughs> Ministers, he noted, have taken the preaching in long rows. <laughs> That's convenient, because if you're wearing a long robe, you can conceal a lot, and ministers have much to conceal. <laughs> well, instead of critiquing the values of society, the church had become, he argued, a social club embracing the values of society. Well, as you can imagine, this broadside against the church didn't go down well with the local clergy. <laughs> when he died at the age of 42, the Copenhagen clergy debated the appropriateness of burying him in the local cemetery. But they did. And when Alice and I were in Copenhagen years ago, I paid my due respects at his gravesite. A couple of sides. I began studying Kierkegaard and becoming somewhat obsessed by him when I was in the seminary. And I recall getting up one morning in 1963 and reading in the newspaper about the bombing of the African American church in Birmingham, the bombing that killed four children. My immediate thought was that SK would have exclaimed, a church was bombed? It must have been a genuine church. It must have been about the Lord's business. It must have been critiquing society's values. A second aside. Soon after I returned to Baylor to teach, I was in conversation with a young man who had recently moved to Waco also. I mentioned Lake Shore, 
the kind of community Alice and I had found here, the quality of our minister's preaching, and I invited him to pay us a visit. He replied that he would like to, but that when he interviewed for the job, he was informed that the company had members in every major Waco church except one, and a condition of his employment was that he joined that particular church so that they would have a business connection there too. My immediate thought was of SK spinning in his grave. <laughs> Kierkegaard became convinced that purity of heart really is to will one thing, and the thing he willed was to do what Peter in the book of Acts says that we ought to do, to obey God above all others. In mapping out the road to such obedience, he described moving through three stages of life. It is these three stages for which he is best known. Stage one. Most people, SK believe, live at the hedonistic level. Life is spent pursuing momentary pleasure in an effort to avoid boredom. The hedonist says that the first kiss is intensely pleasurable, the second not quite as exciting, and it's downhill from there. But after all, there are 50 ways to leave a lover, so life can become a series of first kisses. This is the non-faithful love of a Don Juan. And marriage? Marriage is a frightful prospect of the hedonist because as soon as marriage is mentioned, out jumps duty, says SK. Out jumps duty like a jack-in-the-box, and duty is boring. So the hedonist keeps his bags packed, his traveling shoes on. S.K. hopes, however, to persuade the hedonist reader that though the hedonist pursuit of momentary pleasure is motivated by fear of boredom, ironically, what is truly boring is the hedonistic life in which all relationships are superficial, life in which you are, therefore, strangely lonely. When the hedonist comes to himself or herself, S.K. thinks he or she will begin to ask, is this really all there is? Just momentary, fleeting pleasure? And this question can become the motivation to move from the hedonistic life to the moral life. So stage two. Instead of a hedonistic pursuit of momentary pleasure, the ethical life is the life of duty, moral accountability, commitment to others. Commitment is not the enemy of the pleasures of love, but in fact, S.K. argues, commitment gives depth to love because it is pleasure genuinely shared. While there may be unique excitement in the first kiss, it is time, the duration of time, says S.K., that gives the kiss the value it can really have. Only if there is continuity can there be both pleasure and meaning. The moral life makes relationships possible, makes community possible, makes meaning possible.
And while for SK, this moral life is a significant advance over the hedonistic life, and while he does anticipate that moral commands, cultural norms, and legal rules should, under normal circumstances, be obeyed, nevertheless, the life of faith involves another move, the willingness to obey God rather than others. So, stage three, the, the life of faith. Now, let me say in advance, I think there is a valuable point that S.K. makes in his description of the life of faith as being willing to obey God rather than cultural norms and laws. But there's also a problem here. But even the problem can lead to an interesting insight. When S.K. thought of the ideal of faith, yes, he thought of Abraham. When he marveled at what it would mean to obey God rather than human standards, he thought of Abraham setting himself to sacrifice Isaac. The significance of the Abraham-Isaac story for S.K. is in its dramatic proclamation that for the person of faith, the highest duty is to God, not to human law, not to human morality, not to cultural standards. Now, if you're horrified by the Abraham-Isaac story, even if you are angered by it, think of it at least for a moment as a metaphorical story, an overly dramatic, maybe even a poor metaphor, for those moments in which the religious duty to God Takes, pre takes precedence over human, that is, cultural norms. For human beings are fallible, open to mistakes, and some of these mistakes are reflected in our morality, in our cultural norms, even in our laws. Think of laws in this country that once made slavery legal or laws that prohibited interracial or same-gender marriages, or laws that required fighting in an unjust war. Because human norms can be wrong, in the last analysis, when push comes to shove, at times one ought to obey God rather than humans. It's a straightforward argument. Persons are sinful and fallible, so human laws, moral norms, can be mistaken. But God's perfect. God makes no mistakes. Therefore, one ought to obey God rather than humans. But even a moment's reflection uncovers the problem here. Suppose tonight's a lovely evening and you decide to cook out. You're making your preparations and you notice some activity in your neighbor's yard. As you take in what's going on, you see that your neighbor has his son all staked out. You assume it's some strange new game and you inquire. To your horror, your neighbor says that God has commanded him to sacrifice his son. What do you do? You know what you would do, you would call 911. <laughs> A silly reflection? Oh, not really. We would have called 911 if to have done so 
would have prevented David Koresh from doing what he did outside Waco in April of 1993 in obedience to what he thought God wanted him to do. Now maybe in that case you could say 911 was called and it still turned out to be a matter of great sadness. So here's the rub. We ought to obey God rather than persons because persons may get it wrong. But as fallible people, we may also get wrong what we think God is commanding. And actually, at some level, Kierkegaard understood this problem. That's why he called his book, his book dedicated to the Abraham Isaac story, it's why he called that book Fear and Trembling. Surely Abraham set himself to sacrifice Isaac in fear and trembling. He must have known that he might be getting it all wrong. And I can pretty, pretty much assure you that Sarah would have thought he got it all wrong. And surely David Koresh had it wrong about what God commanded. And surely the members of the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, described as, quote, arguably the most rabid hate group in America have it wrong about what God commands. So how do we cope with this dilemma as we think about the biblical admonition to obey God rather than persons? The answer is ironic, and I mean by ironic, interestingly curious. We ought to obey God rather than persons because persons are fallible and make mistakes. But precisely because persons are fallible and make mistakes, they can also be wrong about what they think God commands. So here's the curious circularity. Persons ought to obey God rather than persons, but at the same time, persons need to check out with other persons their understanding of what it is they think God wants them to do. If you or I develop the conviction that we ought to obey God rather than society's norms, as fortunately some Christians did during the days of government-sanctioned slavery, as perhaps some in this room did during the civil rights movement of the 60s or in opposition to the Vietnam War, or in recent years in supporting the right of gay people to marry, if you or I develop the conviction that we ought to obey God rather than society's norms, we might very well be commended by SK. But if we develop such a conviction, we surely ought to check out that conviction with our spouse, <laughs> with a friend, with a community of friends, so blessed are those when they believe that God requires them to go against cultural norms. Blessed are those who have a thoughtful community with whom they can check out that judgment. Is that not what happened right here at Lake Shore in our organized and lengthy conversations about becoming a welcoming and affirming church? That certainly contravened Baptist norms we were booted out of the Baptist General Convention of Texas, after all. Ironically, then, reflection on the biblical admonition to obey God rather than persons makes us just aware of how dependent on persons we really are. 
Moreover, there's something touching, something moving about the fact that to experience a common life together is to depend upon one another's wisdom and judgment and counsel. In God's wisdom, we have been made for one another, set down in community, and flourish most readily within the midst of that community. It's that community we turn to when difficult judgments have to be made, especially when they are judgments and decisions that have to be made in fear and trembling. So thanks be to God for surrounding us with loving people of wise counsel. Thanks be to God for this community. Thanks be to God for Lake Shore.